am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Election Shock Therapy. Uh, happy holidays. I'm Chris Moore. <laughs> and joining me in my office is... Mitchell Crum. Andy Bramson. And Sam Mulberry. We went around the horn the other direction today. I know. No, like, wow. This was clockwise. Wow. This is we go counterclockwise. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little yeah. weird. A little Usually we go in order of well, seniority after Chris, but we went opposite. Seniority? <laughs> well, Sam is Sam is the senior yeah. Bethel figure here. Wow, that's scary. Um, and then... I'm, I like that we all piled in a van yesterday to take our TAs out to lunch, and we sat by seniority without even I trying know. to. That was amazing. <laughs> right, the chair drove. Uh, the next thing you remember, the apartment sat shotgun, and we just worked our way back to the students who sat in the back of the van. It was really right. weird. And Chris is not mentioning it. He is the next most senior member of the Which department. is really weird to me. Um, <laughs> and I, 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 if you're listening and you haven't ever seen us or met us or know us personally, um, I'm not 40 yet, and somehow I managed to be the second old, uh, mm-hmm. second senior member of our department. Uh, we're a pretty young department right now, which is, which is actually kind of exciting. He's also the only member of the department who's Currently wearing a Santa cap. That's I think right. I can say that you safely. Even though Fred, you don't know what he's wearing. I haven't seen Fred, but I feel confident <laughs> saying Fred is not wearing a Santa cap right now. So here's the deal with the Santa cap. Um, <laughs> my wife and I both have Santa hats, which hang on the on the on the balustrade of our of our. Uh, that's not the right word. Bannister. Bannister of our of our staircase. Like and my kids this morning, Sabrina, my, my daughter is four and a half, and she said, I said, Sabrina, what hat should I wear? And thinking she would pick like a stocking cap for me. And she pointed at the Santa hat. I'm like, <laughs> a four and a half year old tells you to wear a Santa hat. You're wearing you wear a Santa it. hat. Wow. But here's the problem. Um, it really made, messed up my hair. And so now I have a strong incentive not to take off the Santa Can hat. Can we see? Or? Ooh. Sure. Not so bad. It's not messy, but you know, it's it's pretty bad. Okay, yeah, it's a little I'm sure bit. Mine is too, but I haven't just looked at a mirror. So. But I feel like you could do <laughs> this, and you'd be good, right? Like this is why oh, okay. my haircut is recommended <laughs> for winter. <laughs> I especially. wish we had visuals for this. Yeah, you, you really don't need that. Um, I'm the only one who, who actually buzzes apparently, and so it's very yeah. hard to mess up when mine's done properly. It's very hard to mess yeah, it up with is, a stocking cap. Get, get up in the morning, stomp your feet, and your hair's cold. Yeah. But I do this because I'm also balding more than you three, and so give me time. I'll catch up. Yeah, you're working on it. So at any rate, uh, before, right before we hit record, uh, Andy said something which I want to just explore very briefly before we get into more contemporary politics. Uh, we're all, uh, except for Sam, we're all in the political science department here at, at Bethel, and Sam was teasing us a little bit about um, the dearth of numbers, although I have plenty of numbers in the grading I need to do. But um, <laughs> Actually, I was teasing you because you can't record a podcast. In your that, that is true. Yeah. Okay, so here's the first thing. Let's, let's get to a little bit of housekeeping. As always, you can email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. And uh, we're going to be going on a little bit of a hiatus. Uh, we're not going to be putting on election shock therapy for the rest of December, and we're not going to be putting one out in January either. There's a couple reasons for that. Um, the, the primary reason is that Professor Mulberry, who is in addition to our podcast host, he's also an engineer, also our engineer, um, is going to be leading a group of students on a World War One trip to Europe. So where are you going to go? We're going to be in uh, London for about eight days. We're going to and we'll go to um, Oxford for one day there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, then we go to the con- so that's kind of studying pre pre-war the build-up to the yep. war um then we we cross the channel and we go to belgium and northern france and those are our three days on the front okay um and we're literally going to be walking students through trenches and nice. um, and battlefields wow. and cemeteries and monuments so that'll be about three days then we go to mm-hmm. paris for five days and talk about the post-war period talk the, the about peace ex- conference yep uh, okay. expats in america we go to versailles um and then we go to munich for five days to end the trip 
And we talk about, again, post-war, we talk about how does Germany remember the war? What do their mm. memorials look mm-hmm. like? And we talk about the uh, sort of the rise of Nazism, um, okay. Munich being a big hub for that. And then sure. we take them to Dachau on one of the last days. So the consequences of Nazism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. That sounds awesome. Can it's I come? very fun. You can. <laughs> so you have to pay your way, but oh, yes. Shoot. Okay, hang it. <laughs> uh, I thought you actually a... definitely could come if you wanted to. I know. I seriously would love to actually take this course yeah. sometime. That'd be pretty sweet. Um, it's probably not going to happen for years, but you know, maybe someday after the kids That's are right. yep. are grown, yep. you know, like maybe if you and Sam are still going here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could be. If what you guys need to do at some point is finance a trip like this or sponsor a trip like this for alumni. Yeah, in the mm-hmm. summer. We talked about alumni yeah. and donors doing something like that. Yeah. That'd be great. Seriously, that'd be a fun trip. That'd be great. Well, so because you're an engineer and because it, apparently it takes more than three political scientists to figure out how to post a <laughs> podcast, yeah. uh, we're not actually going to record one uh, while you're gone. We'll wait till you get back and then you can, um, then we'll continue with with postings. Uh, that's also true if you listened to our last podcast, you know that we've rebranded the channel uh, to be called Live from AC Second. And EST will still exist. Uh, what we're doing right now will still exist. But um, we're not going to do a weekly podcast. We're going to kind of uh, ramp it down to um, a, a monthly or as needed kind of podcast. We'll definitely cover things like the State of the Union Address. Um, mm-hmm. Which we'll do sort of in retrospect, um, and we'll we'll uh, we'll talk about the inauguration, and we'll talk about sort of the first hundred days of of the Trump presidency as they progress. <laughs> but we're I think we may also do another live show around the hundred days. Um, I, think I know we talked with the folks in the library yeah. about that. Yeah. So yep, and um, it's, and other kinds of issues as they arise. You know, for example, when we declare war on China. Um, <laughs> China. So, <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist. What'd you say? <laughs> China. China, yeah. You got to say it right. Um, so at any rate, uh, but listen to some other things that we previewed in our last podcast. What's going to kind of kind of fill the gaps uh, where EST previously existed as a weekly format. I'm actually excited for the first one in February because we'll have a lot to chew on, I think. So we should, ca- we should make sure we carve out time. For Absolutely. That, so. for the EST, and, yeah. and also, for um, um, you can also contact this channel more generally if you have questions about what we're going to be doing that aren't related specifically to election shock therapy. You can email us at livefromac2nd at gmail.com. That's right. <laughs> All right, uh, gents. I just gave a um, just gave an exam, so I'm fresh off of watching a whole bunch of people sweat over questions. So I have a few for you, but it starts with something that Andy mentioned just before we started hitting uh, before we hit record, which is he said he would prefer that we be called the Department of Government, not the Department mm-hmm. of Political Science. Yeah, uh, some places do this. Harvard uh, notably calls their their department government rather than political yep. science. Texas they, did. I'm not sure if they still do or not. Make the case do. for this, Andy. Why do you th- why why do you feel more comfortable with that term? Because I mean, this so this gets at Sam's critique of us, which I think is largely right. Um, that we, we should be called political humanities or something like that um, instead of political science, right? He was sort of poking fun at us for poetry, our inability to post uh, podcasts and so forth. But um, but I think there's something serious here, which is that I, I don't know. To what extent it's really fair to call social sciences sciences? I mean, mm. like I, um, I just think that there's so much. I mean, like ambiguity, and even think about this last election, right? Our inability to call this well, right? I mean, suggests that you know th- this people are complicated to study, and maybe they fit better under sort of the humanities rubric, which l- leaves a little more room for, or at least feels like it re- leaves more room for uncertainty. Um, and I, so I like the term government, which doesn't sort of load it with sort of these these the same level of scientific claims um, that political science feels like it does. But it also it also doesn't mean that you can't do of course. harder political right. science. Right. You can yeah. still do quantitative work within that. I think that definitely leaves that open. But it just it focuses more on that. It also seems to make it more practical. Um, so it's more about how are people governed well? How are countries and um, you know sort of citizenry governed well as opposed to making it feel more academic-y, which is more of the sort of 
um, the political science. Let's think about this at a very high level of abstraction. So I just kind of like I prefer the term. I mean, it's not a huge deal to me, obviously, but uh, I if you know if it was up to me, that's kind of where our field. So would go. actually, okay. I need to ask you this as a historian: When does the term political science come into? I'm presuming it's late po- 19th century, post World War Two. Oh, post World War Two. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, wow. later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, most and and then this sort of harkens back to sort of what Harvard's doing too. Uh, most pl- places developed exogenous political science departments from their history departments, really following World War Two, yeah. as there was a, a strong belief that um, the scientific enterprise and the social sciences could really expand. This, this was coterminous with the expansion of the GI program, the expansion of the academy, mm-hmm. and a reliance on the sciences in the academy. This was an attempt to sort of carve out a space to study hu- social interactions uh, using some of those methods. And those, uh, hmm. So the scientific method, but also the... Uh, um, uh, also, m- mathematical tools as well, or more systematic kinds of tools. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of this, a lot of this also stems back to what's referred to in the discipline as the behavioralist revolution. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that mm-hmm. uh, attempted to make social science, political science in particular, more sciency. Um, right. And so, on the one hand, I want to sort of push back a little bit on Andy, sure. but then I want to join him, but for a different reason. <laughs> okay. okay. So, um, on the one hand, I want to push back because one of the things that I often tell my students, at least in upper level um, political science courses that are that are not political theory, is I sort of push back on the idea that that we are sort of a soft science mm-hmm. um, because that's sort of what I regard as a pejorative term um, against um, the social sciences. Sure. And so what I argue is that basically, you know, if you look at things like rocks or chemicals and things like that, they never change. And so once you figure out the principles and the equations and things like that, then you've got it. Mm-hmm. Whereas with humans, as Andy already noted, they change. And so I think we're mm-hmm. actually the hard science. We're the one that is difficult. Ah, it's well, difficult to nail down difficult exactly science. what's going on. It's the challenging so science. We're the challenging one. And so that's sure. the, Don't so tell that to our physics department. Science. They will shoot a laser at you. Yeah, well, that's tr- that's probably literally true. But, yes. Um, yes. They have <laughs> um, lasers. But, th- but then I want to sort of join. I want to join Andy because I think I actually agree that we should be a department of government. And mm. I think the reason for that, um, even more more than just our inability sometimes to call things is actually that um, when we think about politics and government, I think what we should be most focused on is sort of the, are the moral implications of what mm-hmm. we're thinking about with government. Right. And when we start talking about science, and this was a big thing that I actually struggled with when I started my PhD program, is there um, was one of the, uh, I'll just name him, um, Jeff Isaac, who taught mm. our um, introduction to political science class uh, as grad students. Mm-hmm. One of the things that he emphasized to us is basically questioning what, what does it mean to call Study, the study of politics and science. What does that even? What does that? What does that mean? And one of the things that he would push us to think about, and that he's continuing to think about, is: is it even okay for political scientists to engage in practical politics? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if we're supposed to be scientists and we're supposed to just right. be looking at it and trying to f- objectively figure out exactly what's going on, then it seems like we have nothing to say about what should happen. Mm-hmm. We're just here to say what does happen and why does it happen. You know, we're not. In other right. words, when we go and we study right. rocks. We don't say, oh, well, you know. The this, should, this should be granite. Right. This should be granite. <laughs> or this should be a sandstone. You know? But as it is, it's nice. Right. Yeah, okay. Sorry, bad rock pun. So, <laughs> at any rate, so, 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 so when you look at that, you know, so, so, so my argument then in favor mm-hmm. of being called the Department of Government would be we should be called the Department of Government, not necessarily because we don't always get things right, sure. um, but because by calling ourselves a Department of Government, it gives us um, it gives us a foundation just like the, just like history or uh, philosophy mm-hmm. or art or things like that to actually make value judgments and say this is what should be happening in government. Um, and I think calling ourselves a science immediately calls into question our place and our standing to do that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think the the one sort of 
rejoinder I want to get on sort of in terms of critiquing us as scientists, right? Is that I think even for social scientists, right? And I agree with you. I mean, I think it's harder to do what we do in that in some sense because it is people are more unpredictable. But even I think for social scientists, we're not frankly the best social scientists out there. I mean, I, th- I feel like a lot, and I'm not a methods expert, so take this for what it's worth, but um, I think a lot of our methods are really sort of second rate, right, compared to like, economists, for example. It feels like we take a lot of what they do and do it less well. Um, and so I'm a lot more comfortable sort of giving economists sort of the label and saying they're really good social scientists. I feel like often, um, especially especially when we get into the quantitative, I think qualitative maybe we do, we do better, but um, the quantitative stuff we do, I'm just uh, often left feeling uneasy that we have haven't done a very good job of maybe um, choosing which which tests we run, choosing how we sort of code terms and so forth. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff, even by very high level political scientists, that is when you sort of examine what they're doing, it's just like this isn't very good. How many students? Um, are you, how many students in your department? Because um, I don't think this is a required course. Correct me if I'm wrong. Take a stats class. We, we don't have a stats class. Right, but, in but, our but do you, I, we, do you I, recommend for their math class? I absolutely that they take? do. I try to steer my students towards a stats class, yeah, either we, math stats or psych stats, two different classes taught here in, yeah. uh, at Bethel. But um, how many actually end up doing it? I would argue somewhere around a third. Okay. Yeah. However, um, we'd love to have a methods class in our department. We just don't have the. The capacity for it, okay. yeah, um, and, the, and, and I think the other thing with that is, I mean, like it, it's more important, really, if they're going into grad school. Like if they're if they're going to grad school, then we really push them hard to, you know, you should think about this. But I think even if they're even the, not, I think, but it's yeah, it's what's well, right, great. Yeah. I mean, if they if they can do it, right, that's, it gives that's them another great. set of tools. It to yeah, absolutely right? does. And I'm gonna, are useful. Can but. I? And just, I, I'm not doing this just for the sake of argument, though. I think maybe it helps. I'm going to disagree with both of you, and I think okay, take a stronger great. line here. I think we should be called political science. Okay. And let me give you a couple of reasons why I, I think that's the case. Um, I, from the Department of Semantics, um, I would argue that <laughs> calling ourselves government unduly focuses on the agency rather than the actor. Um, when we call ourselves government, we're basically taking we're, we're taking a mm-hmm. hard look at institution and separating sure. it from the process and the people. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, it, it, to, to um, allied that, if we we're going to fix that, then we call ourselves politics or something like that. And that yeah. might that would certainly be better on that regard. Yeah, and that's and, been done too. I, yeah. I would agree with that. Actually. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. But that said, that's fair. I would prefer that we be called political science because although I would acknowledge to a certain extent what Andy's saying, although I don't think your criticism is maybe too too harsh. I do think there are Perhaps. good political scientists do, doing good methods, and and, and, and every bit as good as economists or sociologists or anthropologists. And I think some of those fields have their own foibles that political oh, science yeah. avoid. You notice I didn't mention anthropologists and sociologists for praise. <laughs> well, fair, okay, fine. But um, they would argue that they have a speed on qualitative methods, and I would contend with that. I would argue with that on yeah, some, I would too. some cases. But the point of that, the point I want to make is that um, I just because maybe our, our methodologies or our, our executions fall short of some of their disciplines doesn't mean we shouldn't aspirationally call ourselves political science. Sure. Uh, the whole point of naming ourselves political science at the end of World War II was aspirational. It was a desire mm-hmm. to, san- to, to scientificize is that a word? Um, no, the political process <laughs> and to try to make it something which was testable for the purpose of improving it. Sure. And I'd like to see that continued. Um, I'd like to not just wave the white flag and decide that we can't – just because we couldn't predict the Trump election, um, which, by the way, I think we actually did a better job of that than, than – than Sure, sure, sure. And I don't think that's – that's not my main point is that, okay. that failure. It's just I, I think that in general um, – I, I think the, the danger is you make too strong claims, right, about sort of what you've shown. But I think in, in general – to sort of counter that, I think people do at least insert a note of humility. Yeah. Um, sometimes not as much as they need to, but 
But in general, I think political scientists are pretty good about saying, hey, this is probabilistic. Right. It's not, good you know, good political scientists and not pundits right. are good at couching right. their claims. Right. And, I, and, and I'm okay with that. And if I, if I can actually – I mean, on the one hand, I want to agree with Chris. I mean, especially in uh, poking holes in, in other disciplines and <laughs> claims because oh, yeah. I do think that's uh, completely valid. I think eco- ec- economists often get a, somehow a free pass because they use more equations. But then if we look at the economy, I mean, you know, you think about 2008. Sure. I mean, was two, you know, 2008 was sure. much more devastating sure. than, than, than the Trump election and low and behold, we have entire disciplines right. devoted to trying to keep this from happening, and you know, millions of people lost their homes, jobs, yeah. retirement savings, right. and yeah. uh, you know, an entire discipline didn't see it coming. Sure. So, sure. I mean, enough. you know, so you know, so you think about mm-hmm. things like that. You know, d- sometimes people s- sort of say political mm-hmm. science has sort of a physics envy, um, <laughs> and and I and I think that's right. And I my and sort of to join Chris again, <laughs> um, just uh, in some ways to play devil, devil's advocate against my own argument, um, is that that you know maybe in some ways political science is also better thought of as sort of a biological science, hmm. where the where the point hmm. is not so much to necessarily either some quantitative aspects to it, right. but the focus uh, in many ways is is often to do more classification, um, sort mm-hmm. of and to think about you know how do rules work, um, how do different actors work, yes. things like that, instead of thinking purely in terms of can we run an equation and come out with you know the magic right. number is forty two or whatever, right? You know the answer to the ultimate question is anyway, of forty two, uh, right. right? So right. at any rate, but I, I guess, but I guess I, I still would stand by my my other argument, which is that I think calling ourselves a science potentially calls into question our, our standing to make uh, value claims, and I think that, and I think right. that. Um, it's a problem, and I think that's one of the things that bothers me about ca- being called a political scientist. Um, mm-hmm. Is just because I, I basically I feel like one of the most important things we can do, and we, and we sort of try to straddle this line, and I mm-hmm. think it really sort of hamstrings us sometimes. We want to sort of encourage civics among our students, but then at the same time, where do we get off encouraging these sort of civic right. values and democratic values um, when in fact we're just supposed to be studying it for what it is? Right, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we and we have colleagues. Um, both here and and and, el- and abroad and elsewhere, who draw that line, at, find, draw that line in different places. Oh yeah. Um, Jibu Carlson, our much beloved and now departed um, elder statesman colleague, um, who passed away this uh, earlier this year, um, famously served on the St. Paul School Board for a dozen years or so, mm-hmm. and was very clear about his uh, progressive democratic leanings mm-hmm. in the classroom, mm-hmm. though to his credit, he was charitable and, and loving and uh, to students of all political stripes and, mm-hmm. and was very um, adamant in his ability to um, degrade them all fairly and, and those sorts of things as well. So um, no, I'm serious. I mean, I mean, I really, I, some of, yeah. some of his favorite students uh, in his latter years of teaching here were, were, were very conservative students mm-hmm. who, who me mm-hmm. disagree with politically. So I, right. um, and, and but I, uh, for myself at least, I work very very hard to obscure my own political leanings in the classroom, uh, particularly in my intro level classes where I lecture mm-hmm. more, right. um, where I'm trying to trying to talk about objective political findings and objective political science. I, I try really hard to keep my political views um, out of the conversation, mm-hmm. so much so that I'm pretty pleased when I have students who can't figure out what what my political leanings are at the end. Mm-hmm. But we do have a problem in political science because. Um, According to a, um, a recent study, uh, um, the, cons- the consultation or the use of political science in legislation and the citation of political scientists by legislators is at an all-time low in the United States. Um, this, this creates you know, crisis of confidence in, in our discipline. Why aren't po- politicians paying attention to us? And I think there's two reasons for that. I think politicians are increasingly incentivized not to, not to read too deeply into political science uh, because of the constraints of their positions. But at mm-hmm. the same time, 
political scientists are the fear is increasingly producing work which is not of use to political to politicians mm-hmm. that we're we're pursuing sort of esoteric uh, um, topics that are not of use to contemporary legislation or contemporary policy making mm-hmm. and so we end up um, not being relevant and so they're actually Alexander George comes to mind as a political scientist who advocated political relevance in scholarship mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but also there are actual conferences designed to try to connect political scientists with real world policy problems and real, real world policy makers right. um, what do you think about that uh, this is what you both have just said how much of a role should political scientists take in the policy making process I guess part of it depends on what you what, uh, what it means to be relevant. On the one hand, um, so my 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 first thought is I'm just thinking about some um, recent recent work, uh, for example, by uh, Bartels on the nature of democracy. It's Larry like Bartels. That. Yeah, 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 Larry Bartels. And um, one of the things that he's arguing essentially is that people are very uninformed, um, which is not a huge surprise to people who study public opinion. But that essentially he's made a systematic argument, basically that um, a lot of our democratic values are are, are under threat um, yes. at this point because of that, and. I don't want to get into uh, his argument right now, except to say that, you know, that argument is extremely relevant, not necessarily to politicians, but it's very relevant to anyone who actually to, to cares about, right, to the polity itself, mm-hmm. to anyone who actually cares about uh, democracy and that America continues to actually um, have some for, form of Republican or Democratic values. Um, that's a pretty important thing to be thinking about and to be looking at, and that should be relevant to anyone. Um, now, whether people are paying attention to it and his own research, in fact, would indicate that they won't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, um, to anyone who actually cares about it, um, that seems very relevant. Now, that's not going to be relevant to a politician who's running for office. In fact, it may be the opposite. I mean, they may uh, prefer, actually, that people be uninformed and not really be uh, paying attention to what they're <laughs> yeah. doing. And In fact, you know, we've got some research that indicates that. Mm-hmm. You know, that Congress people mm-hmm. actually prefer it when they just get to kind of spin um, what's going on at their home district and there isn't a very strong media. Right. You know, because people distrust oh, media yeah. and things yeah. like that, you know. So Congress people love that. That's mm-hmm. what you know, and, and of course other politicians as well. You know, presidents and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which and, uh, but nonetheless, that doesn't mean that the political science that isn't helping people who are trying to obfuscate and hide what they're actually doing and make it so that they are right. the only ones who can say it. That doesn't mean that just because the work isn't going to help them, that it isn't relevant to the polity itself. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I, I think for my part. I would like to see more attention paid by political scientists to policy relevance. Um, we do have, uh, I guess I would encourage those bridging the gap types of conferences and types of, types of working environments mm-hmm. that incentivize um, policy relevant research. And I guess, I, you know, to go kind of deeper in, I'd like to see the academy reward that um, mm-hmm. in terms of giving credit for scholarship related to policy relevance, which I think in general is under rewarded compared to policy or to scholarship that simply advances um, a, a research agenda within, within mainstream yeah. of political science. Yeah. And to, to add to that too, I think the, the other thing that comes into play here is that there is, um, there is a tendency to undervalue what is considered popular work. In other words, work that tries Ooh, to pitch yeah, itself sure. as relating to you know the the general public mm-hmm. or to politicians, right? In other words, that tries to make itself more accessible. Um, okay. That that tends to not get the kind of credit um, from you know the promotion committees and so forth. Yeah. Um, I remember that, when I was writing my dissertation is, so. um, on terrorism and insurgency um, in the. 
um, in the late uh, early, the late two thousands, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I would tell my people about my topic, give them my elevator speech, and sometimes they would say, "Oh, that's timely." And timely was said in a very <laughs> cutting way, which meant which which was sort of pejorative. It was this idea oh, really? that, "Oh, yeah. you just picked that topic because it's so hot right now. Mm. Um, why aren't you studying something obscure that you can demonstrate your erudition with?" And I think and, and I, that's a really troubling kind of thing. I mean, of course, I'm defensive, yeah. defensive of my own work, I suppose. <laughs> right, but, right, right. No, yeah. I, I agree. And the, the other thing I would add, though, to as I to push back, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, obviously, political science research—that's true. That it's you know at an all-time low in terms of um, politicians actually referencing this and so forth. I'm not entirely sure, however, that that is all our fault. Um, <laughs> and that's so, right. part of this to me does relate to what we've talked about on this um, this you know podcast before, which is sort of: Are we moving into this post-factual era? Right. Mm-hmm. And if we're moving to a post-factual era in politics, where Facts don't matter. Um, you know, it's just sort of whatever you want to believe, whatever you want to say works, right? Um, then it, it does make it very hard for us to play that game, right? Because we are very much considered with empirical realities, right? And so whether we call ourselves government or politics or political science, um, it doesn't change the fact that we're trying to research real things and say things that we believe as much as possible are objectively true. And so in a, a sort of post-factual um, scenario, right? This becomes very difficult. And I mean, one moment that just sort of stood out to me where, you know, he just sort of said, wow, people really don't want to engage um, the realities of their positions, right? It was in that third presidential debate when Chris Wallace, um, who I thought did a good job in that debate, um, pushed back really hard against both candidates. And he said, look, first of all, he confronted Hillary Clinton. He said, your plan is going to raise, you know, the, the sort of um, debt to national um, you know, GDP, GDP, per, GDP for, per year, right? Um, he's going to raise it to, you know, from 70, I think 77 to 86 percent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, over the next few years, how do you respond to that? Donald Trump's was even worse. He was going to raise it from 77 to 105 percent right in the next right, right. i think the, the number was a decade maybe or something like that but anyway the bottom line was i mean they both you know had these plans that didn't work numerically right well and they just or, simply or they had consequences let's put it that way yeah i mean they, they were they were bad for the the national debt right they were going to make the national, the debt, national debt right worse right yes. they were and they were you know and this was not like you know chris wallace making up these numbers these were pretty objective sort of analyses saying yeah this is your the numbers only, don't work o- right OIP, um they they are not going to make things better they are going to in fact make things worse if you do what you say you're going to do right yeah. and both candidates simply refused to really you know engage that and they mm-hmm. said you know sort of responded with platitudes right well, well we need to deal with problem x or we're going to grow the economy four or five percent and that'll sort of solve everything right. how are we going to do that we have no idea but we're just going to do that and i'm just going to say we're going to do that so therefore it's going to happen right? right and so again in that kind of environment um i can see why we're not getting cited <laughs> number one even if we have policy relevant research i'm not sure that solves this problem because i don't know that anyone cares about facts and so you know to some extent you know, this part of this is on us to be relevant, but part of it is also on um, our political society to return to sort of caring deeply about facts and, you know, actually thinking about do policies work as opposed to what policies would we like to have um, and hang the consequences. Now, mm. let me I'll say this. Caref- you know, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, you know, I, I actually I was <laughs> this is I, this is going to show once again that I'm kind of a geeky nerd here. But um, <laughs> last <laughs> night I don't think we need to prove that. But, it was not, not, but not geeky enough to post a podcast. This is true. No. Um, but last night I was actually um, uh, my I, I was I was up working on stuff, um, looking at creating things. Lo and behold, so I took a break um, from doing that. And my break from doing this kind of work <laughs> last night was I actually watched the third part of ESPN's uh, O.J. Simpson uh, Made in America. 
Oh, and so, which which is fascinating. I highly recommend. Well, it's at least, not as geeky nerdy as it could be. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So it, it is still ESPN. <laughs> so that's pretty good. Um, at any rate, <laughs> popular. Uh, at, at any rate, um, I, I can't recommend the whole thing. I haven't seen all five parts yet, but I've okay. only seen the first three parts. But the first three parts are absolutely fabulous. I highly recommend them. Uh, but in the third part, one of the things that they that the documentary makers are getting into and that they're illustrating is the extent to which um, identity mattered much more than the facts mm-hmm. during that trial. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're getting into the fact that. Basically, if you were black, you felt that O.J. was innocent, mm-hmm. and it didn't matter what kind of evidence or anything else came out. And if you were white, you were convinced that he was guilty. And it, once again, it didn't matter mm-hmm. um, the history of the police department. It didn't matter right. any of these right. objective things that, that, that were out there about the abuses of the LAPD. Right. And so and, and so one of the things that, that really is fascinating to watch there is you're actually seeing maybe what we're seeing in a more macro sense now is sort of a post-fact, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. emotion-driven um, identity-driven right. um, idea about what the political realities yeah. are. And so I would actually recommend it um, to anyone to actually mm-hmm. sort of watch, especially that third part, and to think about what, what does it mean for our politics yeah. if we're all acting yeah. in this way? If we yeah. no longer take seriously what is the evidence, what do we actually see? If we just say, what's my identity, uh, what feels right to me, and mm. therefore that's my opinion and that's what we're going on. Could be a good piece for political quest next year. Could be. Yeah. Uh, identity politics is very big right now. And not just in political science, but also in the popular culture. For sure. Um, political scientists have talked about identity as a political uh, variable for decades, but it's really coming into popular parlance, which is, again, for pr- our previous conversation, mm-hmm. having political co- concepts move into popular parlance is great, although it presents some certain challenges when those terms get corrupted or misused. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're talking a lot about what the politics of identity mean. Mm-hmm. I just want to say one more thing about political scientists before we move on to <laughs> some of the things you guys are talking about here. I, I can think of a couple, several political scientists, that is people who had political science PhDs, mm-hmm. advising um, the George W. Bush uh, administration. Mm-hmm. Connie Rice, for example, mm-hmm. right. a Sovietologist, yeah. um, who wrote one of the more important late books about understanding the Soviet Union. Uh, got her before. master's at Notre Dame. There you go. And now she's helping decide who's going to be in the college football playoff. Which, thank you, Condi Rice, for selecting Ohio State. <laughs> Condi Rice is um, a very talented woman. What's that? So she's a very multi-talented yes, woman. Yes, she is. Um, she's, also, she's also a wonderful pianist, apparently. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling so, you. Um, anyway, she's a renaissance um, woman. What can you say? Anyway, uh, if uh, <laughs> and we had, we had some political scientists also advising the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as many as we'd like, but there were some people there that certainly <laughs> had those kinds of credentials. Mm-hmm. I can't think of a single political science PhD who is advising Donald Trump. No, is it, can we think of one that I can immediately think? I mean, of. David Petraeus has has a um, yeah. has a grad. I mean, so, several of the generals have grad degrees. Right? Uh, yeah. Petraeus is not officially in the Obama. It should be clear, is not in the Trump administration. The position right. we thought he was going to take, say, uh, Secretary of State, has gone to Rex Tillerson, <laughs> which who we does will not talk have a political science PhD. Let's talk about um, that one. <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about Tillerson? <laughs> Let's talk about Tillerson. Okay, so. If you recall, last time we talked uh, on EST, <laughs> I read down this gargantuan list of, of uh, potential Secretary yeah. of State picks. And at the very bottom of it was this uh, Exxon Mobil CEO, Rex Tillerson. And we both we all kind of went, huh, at the end of that Who? one. Because <laughs> the, the big names were Mitt Romney and Rudy Giuliani and Sean Bolton. Um, David good, good We thought Michael Bolton had a better chance of becoming Secretary of State than Rex Tillerson. <laughs> Oh, my word. Tell me about this guy. Why, why do we think that Donald Trump... I wonder Trump... why people question our predictive abilities. Right, exactly. <laughs> why yeah. do we think... We're entering an era of unpredictability. <laughs> um, okay, sure. But, okay, there are some certain... Now, now that Rex Tillerson has been selected um, as Donald Trump's nominee for Secretary of State, certain patterns are seeming to emerge here. How, what is the 
we've mostly filled out most of the major positions in the Trump uh, cabinet now. What sort of patterns do we see emerging here? People outside of traditional politics, I think, yes. um, is is the general trend. I mean, so one one way that's been manifest has been in, with these appointments of generals, which we mm-hmm. talked about last time. Um, so I won't revisit and that. And business moguls. And then the other is business moguls. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, and, and some of them are in traditional places. I mean, like commerce, you often get a business mogul. Absolutely. Right? Um, Treasury is not unusual, but it is unusual to put somebody like that in state. Right. And so yes. and, and to be fair to him, I mean, Trump said this when he was running. He's like, I'm going to look you know, all over for the best people mm-hmm. and we're going to find people you've never heard of and so forth. Right. And so that's what he claims he's doing now. I mean, I think the the counter argument to that would be that um, you know this Rex Tillerson seems to have um, uncomfortably close ties for somebody who'd be sort of representing the United States to foreign powers, and perhaps right. is, is sort of compromised in that regard. Um, I guess the, the positive spin on that would be he has a good relationship with people like Vladimir Putin. Right. The concerning thing is how close is he to Vladimir Putin, mm-hmm. and is he able to? Um, stand firm for American interests, and there I um, am among the unconvinced, right? Um, And I think a number of our um, congressional leaders, including a lot of members of Trump's own party, are unconvinced on this. And so this is going to be interesting to see if this guy can get confirmed, because a lot of Republican senators have said, we have some big questions about this one. They're not happy about that. They're also not happy about John Bolton, who's supposedly going to be the undersecretary of state. Right. Although that's interesting too, because Bolton is at to, least had at least does have diplomatic experience. Yeah, he's just not very diplomatic. He was not particularly good at diplomatic experience. Yeah. He was. Uh, yeah. He was uh, in. Uh, he was the permanent representative to the UN under uh, George W. Bush, and was famously caustic about the UN itself. Right, and couldn't get confirmed by a Republican Senate. Right, right, um, because he was not, you know, sufficiently diplomatic. Bush ended up making a, a sort of um, recess appointment. It also doesn't hurt that he. It also doesn't help. He looks like Yosemite Sam. Yeah, he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, he does not look. You know. But, but, I mean, some diplomats, some very good diplomats have looked very funky. So that's okay. <laughs> but, you know, it's just more his, his sort of John caustic personality. Has a very long face. That's true. He, he does. He does. He does. Um, and so the, the other interesting thing about all this, too, is that there's, there's some indications that Tillerson himself is not terribly happy about the whole idea of Bolton being his undersecretary. So there's, there's a lot of angles for that drama That has happened here. before, though. We've oh, yeah? had some uh, oh, disjunctions. Yeah? I, I can't remember who it was right now, but as I recall um, – uh, uh, Colin Powell was not particularly happy with mm-hmm. one of his undersecretaries mm-hmm. of state who uh, was sort of put there as a compromise ver- to sort of placate various uh, constituencies right. within right. the Bush presidency. Right. Yeah, can't remember who that was now. That's I can't remember either. But um, but, but yeah, so it'll be, so it'll be interesting. I mean, I'm not sure either of these guys actually will end up getting confirmed. Really? Or, I, mean, I mean, well, they might. I mean, I think that you know, obviously the odds are they do. But but I think there's a, a chance that they both get rejected. I mean, and certainly like for example, Rand Paul has pushed back very strongly against yes. both of them. Has threatened to hold it up. Um, and there's, you know, there's some ability to do that. And I think that the Democrats would be fine with that being held up. Um, having so you, the Russian, only need having the Russian supported right? Syrian military shooting citizens in Aleppo doesn't help a pro Russian Secretary of State get confirmed, too. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I, just, just, just getting to values, I mean, I think that's something that everyone should be paying attention to. I mean, just thinking about mm-hmm. is, is the Russian state someone. As we're witnessing right, right mm-hmm. now, you know mm-hmm. what's happening in Aleppo, and with right. full, you know, basically it's happening because of Russian intervention and support. Uh, is this is this something that we want to be more friendly towards? Yeah, and align yeah. with. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean, so I'm I am pleased I think to see that um, people, some of the people on the, even the Republican side are raising concerns about this and saying. Let's think about this. So I hope that that goes through. through not necessarily they block it. I mean, if it, maybe maybe it turns out these are good people, right? But but if these concerns are the way they look right now, right? Um, then I think that there's a good case to be made that these appointments should be blocked. And my hope would be that 
um, people like McCain and Graham and Paul would be willing to do that. And Rubio. And Rubio, yeah. yeah. Rubio. All these guys have, ex- all these uh, senators have expressed reservations about a pro-Russian yeah. Secretary of State and the pro-Russian position, frankly, of the, of the Trump administration. Right. And there are others I would expect to join them. I and mean, people like Susan Collins in Maine mm-hmm. um, yeah. come to mind, right? Um, where, you know, there's there's good reasons why they might want to stand up to, to this president and in particular on these issues. A lot of this is going to depend uh, on the willingness of a subset of Republican senators to produce to, to take a stand against the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. And I think that relies on them making a judgment call early on on whether they think that the relative unpopularity of Donald Trump, even as he's an elected president, mm-hmm. um, will be durable and whether right. he will become more or less popular over time. Right. It's rare for the for um, senators to oppose their own uh, party's leadership in, the, uh, in terms of confirmations, right. especially at the beginning, because all presidents usually come to power with a, in a honeymoon period. Right. Um, and we're seeing some evidence of that. I mean, Trump's favorability rates are up around 50 now, which mm-hmm. is a lot higher than when he was elected. Right. So. And I mean, keep, yeah. keep as a benchmark, keep in mind that about 46 percent of, of voters voted for Donald Trump. Right. And so to say that he's up at 50 now means that some people who didn't vote for him mm-hmm. now or at least didn't vote, perhaps uh, now have a higher uh, favorable opinion of him. Right. Um, and some of the people, by the way, who voted for him, as we talked about on here before, had an unfavorable opinion of him. Right? Correct. So, they sort of bit their lip so, and voted yeah. for him. Yeah. Yep. Right. Well, so, um, this kind of moves us into a little bit of prognostication about Donald Trump's first hundred days. Mm. So let me ask you this. There's, there's so many things we can unpack here. What will be, uh, as historians look back on Donald Trump's first hundred days, assuming no big exogenous shocks to the system, you know, the Chinese invasion sure, of Taiwan sure. or something like that. What, um, <laughs> why do you bring up that example? <laughs> oh, just because. Um, why, what do you think will be the big news story of the first hundred days of the Trump administration? Um, I think you're going to get some kind of repeal of Obamacare. Um, I think that's going to be big. I don't know okay. if it's really going to be a full repeal, but I think the Republicans are going to feel like they need to do something um, to knock it down. Um, again, I, I don't I don't want to go too far here. I'm not sure um, whether they can do a full repeal, and they certainly talked about phase timing and so forth, right? I mean, but I think there's going to be something there. Um, I, the other two things that are come to mind is that, that be based on what congressional leaders have said are some kind of tax cut. Um, has been talked about, and obviously then the Supreme Court nominee. But I think that Obamacare would be probably is likely to be the biggest uh, story. I think Obamacare is going to take a little bit longer to to, to unveil. I think okay. you probably get through the first hundred days without a vote on repealing, really, unless members um, to the right of um, of Paul Ryan decide to push for it. I think Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell both know that they need to have something in place to replace Obamacare with. Otherwise, a simple repeal is going to be very unpopular if a whole bunch, if several million people get kicked off of insurance overnight. I think that's going to become really problematic. So I predict that's going to take longer than three months to, to iron out. Now, so here we're getting into the policy weeds a little bit. But yep. would, would a repeal kick anyone actually off insurance? Not if you, not if you put it. I don't think it does. Not if you, not if you create a timetable to, to sort of phase well, the Well, even so, out. people have insurance, right? I mean, like, it, it would it would get rid of the, the sort of arenas through which they got the insurance, mm-hmm. potentially. But I don't think it technically kicks anyone off, does it? Well, unless presumably... You, it, it, unless the people have been so, added so, to Medicaid or something so like that. 
And again, I'm not an expert on this, but I think yeah. one of the so there are a couple of big things that would happen if you had just repealed Obamacare and did nothing to replace it. One of them is you would lose all the federal subsidies. Right. Exactly. And so suddenly everybody who, couldn't afford it. Right. Uh, right. So, mm-hmm. so you would, you would right. suddenly be faced with millions of people who could no longer afford um, insurance, and so therefore would have that's what I was referring basically to. Basically forced, okay. To, okay. basically be forced to drop it. So okay. Um, so that would be so that that would be the first thing. The other thing that could happen then as well is you would lose the protections on people with pre-existing conditions. So insurance companies could then drop people who had serious conditions such as cancer or um, you know other major chronic diseases okay. chronic diseases yeah. and things like that they yeah. would no longer be protected and um, almost certainly would be dropped by insurance companies wait um, so are, this is, and this and this is what happened by the way before Obamacare okay. was was in place so insurance companies are actually allowed to drop people who already have coverage I didn't think they were allowed to do that like I, I thought they I thought they could you could turn them down for coverage but I didn't I didn't think well, that's kind of the point yeah, of insurance, right? Is that you you bought this right. in good faith, and then you have this insurance, and therefore they that's, can't. That's a good question. I, I, I think I'm not 100 percent sure on that. Um, why wouldn't you drop anybody who had a serious right. condition, right? I mean, like anytime you got, well, sorry, you're having a baby. Like we don't feel like paying you know, fifteen thousand right. dollars. So, psh. yeah, that's 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 probably true. But then I guess that would go back to the question of can you afford it? And once right. and once you right. have a chronic condition, obviously that raises your risk and you can your rates can And I think the rates could go up a lot. Right. So right. suddenly if you have cancer, yeah. you know, suddenly yeah. your premiums are, you know, $100,000 a month or something like that. Yeah. Sure. Um, sure. They know. could do things like that. Right. All, all that yeah. to say, I think these yeah. you, the problems you guys are highlighting are sufficient to suggest that Ryan and McConnell will give pause to uh, their yeah. um imme- an immediate repeal of Obamacare. I think something well, else will. Yeah. They might have they might have some kind of a Which is why I'm being cautious here. I don't mm-hmm. think they're going to repeal it. Fully, I don't think even the final version is going to be a return to simply pre twenty ten. I think the big story, for a couple of reasons, will be something else you mentioned. I think will be the Supreme Court nominee. I think Donald Trump will want to appoint a Supreme Court nominee relatively early. Oh yeah, that and I think up. knowing yeah. what we know about Donald Trump, um, knowing his excellent work on The Apprentice, I think <laughs> he will want to make a show of this. Um, oh. And I don't mean it, I don't mean a literal show. I don't mean he's going to actually film. It could although, be a literal. Although show. that'd be kind of fun. I think that's a good prediction. I but I, I do think <laughs> we're going to no. see several names floated. I think we'll see some big time meetings with potential mm. nominees, more so than other past presidents have done. And eventually, you'll see a rollout of a Supreme Court nominee, um, mm-hmm. and comparisons to Scalia or to whomever uh, mm-hmm. Trump wants to wants to compare them to. And um, I think that will be a dominant story because we have a we have a four four split in mm-hmm. the Supreme Court right now, and I think whoever uh, Trump weighs in will will certainly try to break the the the, the tie towards a conservative sure. wing of the Republic, or conservative wing of the of the, yeah. of the Supreme Court, and who that person is and what their beliefs are is going to be fascinating and a oh, big yeah. big signal uh, to Trump's Republican constituencies oh, yeah. because if he picks somebody who's comparatively moderate. Um, even like Roberts, Roberts moderate, not not even thinking about Kennedy moderate here. Sure. Um, that's a very different signal than if he picks someone in the in the frame of Alito or or Scalia. Right. Right. Actually, Scalia, Scalia and Alito are quite list? different. As you say, yeah, that's that's. I, I get, I get. It, yeah, I'll just say it just riles me um, when uh, not not you, Chris, but <laughs> but every time Trump mentions Scalia, because everything about his uh, campaign and his politics are so antithetical to everything oh, Scalia yeah. stood for. Absolutely. Um, and so it, it, is, uh, it shouldn't it surprise just, us if the person he picks is not an Antonin Scalia. Yeah. And right. I, I don't even. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, one, one of the things I do think that's a good prediction to say that Trump will probably make a show of this. I think that he's already shown that you know he regards politics less as public service and more as grandstanding for himself. Um, I think that's mm-hmm. obvious. But um, <clears throat> well, but, to, to be well, I'll try to be a little bit fair. Don't you think he sees those two things as coterminous? 
that his uh, maybe yeah I think I think and 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 in that sense I think basically he understands politics as as the sh- as show business he doesn't yes. understand it as as a public that, service yes um, and I think I think well, that's well, that sh- is the public service right that is the public service yeah the public service is the is the he's show entertaining them right, right mm-hmm. it's entertaining the masses um it's which, like circuses in Rome yeah yeah yeah. Yep. Um, but circuses in Rome were a public service, according to the oh, people yeah. who put on the circuses. Yeah, that's no, true. Exactly. There you go. Yep. That's right. Bread and circus. <clears throat> At any rate, one of the things that I think hasn't been mentioned so far, and I think will be a big deal in the 100 days as well, um, is Trump will have to make some kind of action on immigration. And it will be interesting to see if he pushes for some kind of a bill. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if that, you know, if basically he tries to see, uh, you know, if there can be some kind of, you know, bill for the, for the wall or something, or whatever <laughs> that happens to turn into. Right. Um, or or if he, offense. you know, he's made quite a few promises, some of which he's walked back, some of which he's waffled on and things yeah. like that. But what exactly is he going to do in terms of uh, deportations? Because he's made all these yeah, right. grand promises. Yep. And I think that's going to be a very early on something that is going to, you yeah. know, he's going to want to emphasize. And, of course, if he does attempt to deport millions of people, that's going to require an enormous police action. And it's going to be something, mm-hmm. you know, uh, essentially un- in, in some ways unprecedented, um, at least mm-hmm. in contemporary times here, to see uh, that kind of um, that, that kind of action uh, carried out. And we're definitely going to see, you know, the consequences of that. We'll see families right. basically split apart or carried off and things like that. Yeah. yeah. If, he, if he goes that route, which, yeah, yeah I think he's going to have to do something. I agree. I'm just... I don't know if he's going to like. Will he? Will cooler heads prevail and make him realize you can't actually do some of that? I think. Right? I think they will. I so. honestly don't think he's going to get a lot of traction early on in immigration. Yeah, because and that's again my so my prediction is based partly on what Ryan and McConnell have signaled they want to do, yep. which is the tax cuts and the Obamacare roll, that's what rollback. And obviously, see. I mean right. the Supreme Court. Of gonna, course. I think we're going to see movement but. towards the tax cut, movement towards some kind of alternative to Obamacare, the Supreme Court pick, for sure. And one other one, and the Supreme Court should go quickly. By the way, I mean, I, I would yeah. think that unless the Democrats I think, that's really why I think decide be, to fight, I think that's why I think it'll be a first hundred days story because I think it has yeah. a chance of, of oh, I think really so. having substantial progress in the first hundred days. It's just um, sort of an old story, I guess, at this point, in the sense that we've been thinking about it for a year. That's my only. Yeah, opinion. but anyway, yeah. But it will. But once a name comes out, it will sure. become the story. Yep. Except I think there'll be another one other story is I predict in the first hundred days we're going to see, see how good we are at predictions. <laughs> yeah, no. I think we're going to see back in late April. <laughs> an American retrenchment in um, in Syria. Now, America is not mm-hmm. uh, publicly involved in Syria, but American uh, uh, America is channeling weapons and equipment to the Syrian rebels. What we call mm-hmm. the moderate Syrian rebels, although most scholars disagree that there is a clear distinction between moderate and non-moderate yeah. uh, rebels in Syria. Russia, for its part, is supporting the Syrian government, and, and Russian-supported Syrian government forces are liberating the city of Aleppo right now. And by liberating, I mean shooting citizens in the street. <sighs> and, uh, and, this is hard. Burying them but in um, Trump has been very... I said and burying them. Oh, yeah. 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 Yep, burying the rubble. And... Um, the Trump administration has made it clear that they want to move closer to Russia. We do not want to confront Russia in Syria. He's also promised to defeat ISIS very quickly. And I think a way for the Trump administration to claim that's happening is to give Russia and the Syrian government freer reign in Syria, which I think means pulling back from the rebels and allowing the government to retake the country by bloody force if if, if needed. Now, this is the direction things are tending anyway. ISIS is on the retreat in, in mm-hmm. Syria. And right. I, but I think... I think the, the, the Trump administration will turn a blinder eye than the Obama administration has done, which is actually fairly substantial. Uh, Obama has allowed some fairly significant atrocities to occur in Syria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the Trump administration will do more of that in the interest of, of stabilizing the region mm-hmm. and will give Russia more influence in Syria. Yep. 
Yeah. And I think that's true. something we'll see in the first 100 days. I agree. I think that's not going to be because just because of our fo- tendency to focus on our own things and not things far afield. I think that'll be less of a big story, but I, mm-hmm. I agree. I think that's And then once cool. and once um, once the Syrian government kicks ISIS into a f- smaller and smaller part of the country and the United States supports the Iraqi troops to do the same thing, he can claim that he, ISIS is defeated. There you go. So I think those are some of the first 100-day predictions. Yep. Uh, anything else? Seems like enough to be getting along with. You think, you, you think <laughs> Kanye's going to join the administration? Um, I think he's going to sing at the inaugural. Do you really think so? <laughs> hopefully, right? And then hopefully he can go into some kind of random rant. It'd be great. Not only... <laughs> I hadn't even thought about this. Almost all presidents have some kind of musical performance at the... Oh, and there's stories about he's had trouble finding people. Oh, I'll bet, um, because... I mean, he's got... What's his face? Um, oh, why can't I think of his name? Yeah. Um, Ted Nugent? Ted Nugent, yeah. Seriously? Yes, Ted Nugent, I think, is lined no. up. There's one other one they mentioned. Michigan's finest. Um, <laughs> but anyway. Just kidding. That's Kid Rock. But he and Kanye met. I mean, they had this this meet this meeting, they, this really awkward sort of exchange as they're coming out of Trump Tower and... People are asking Kanye about his 2020, you know, run that he's already declared for. And, yeah, you know, he's like, I just want a picture of Trump and Trump. You know, we're just friends. We're just friends. And talk about so life. He's a, so he's a good man. So he's a good man. Yeah, like, you know, he goes off and rants occasionally, but good. What? Okay, say that. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, both of these people are Donald Trump and Kanye West are people who thrive on publicity, and I think that's I think fair. both of them got a small win out of this, right? Mm-hmm. I, I I can't imagine what they talked about. Uh, they said is they there is, is the, what is the what is the life. what is the percentage life. chance Donald Trump has listened to any part of Kanye West's oeuvre? Um, I, I guess I would, zero. I, I, it is at zero. Really? No, there's no way Donald Trump has listened to anything Kanye West has produced. Oh, I don't know because because I, I guess I guess I would push back on that just to say that Donald Trump is such an entertainer that I bet he tries to at least keep his finger on the pulse of what's popular. Yeah, mm. I bet he's listened to a little bit of it. Um, I don't know that he's like, I don't know that he's like fully focused as he listened to it. But, right. I doubt he's a fan. But I bet it's like, he's had it playing before somewhere along the way. All right. All right. Yeah. yeah but, I'm, not you know, buy, I'm not buying it. You're not buying it. All right. <laughs> Chris is definitely not buying this. Um, <laughs> okay. One other, one other thing in the news recently. Um, we got a, just as, just as, um, James Comey ramped up the uh, email server uh, conversation right, right before the election, which now the Democrats are blaming for the loss, which I think is fallacious. Um, we're now ramped up the CIA story again. This uh, mm-hmm. this question about Russian involvement in the American electoral process. Right. I want to do this as a public service because I feel like this is um, something that's gotten uh, – as I've talked to students and uh, even folks in my family, a lot of people think this uh, – what the CIA has alluded to here is this idea that somehow Russia hacked voting machines or mm-hmm. seeded mm-hmm. ballots in, in, in key important states. Let me be clear right now. Um, what we know as the non as as the as the public without access to classified sources mm-hmm. is that what the CIA is alleging is that what was previously believed, which is that the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, was hacked by Russian uh, by Russian hackers, um, and emails from John Podesta specifically were leaked mm-hmm. um, to the press um, uh, early on in the election process, which ultimately. It's unclear how much of an impact that had on the election, but certainly became a news story and and the disclosure. Mm -hmm. What the CIA is now suggesting is that was definitely done with the uh, from Russia and probably with with the imprimatur of the Russian government. The Russian government hacked the DNC, but and the in the new piece of information here is that it also appears that they may have also hacked the RNC, although those stories weren't released. 
Hmm. And the supposition, let me be clear about that. The assumption is because the DNC emails were released and not the RNC emails, that this shows that the Russian government had a a fighting interest in seeing Donald Trump elected president and not Hillary Clinton. And that's as far as the story goes. There's no evidence yet that key states like Pennsylvania, which I think is really hard to hack, or places like Michigan or Wisconsin actually had hacking going on in the voting process itself. What the CIA is alleging is that these stories beforehand were an attempt to propagandize the American electorate in a way that benefited Donald Trump. And that's where the story is. I think one thing that is worth noting here, too, in relation to this whole idea that you know, the elections themselves were tampered with. You can certainly argue that, you know, maybe the the narratives because of what was released and what wasn't sure. released were, were tampered with. I think that that you know might actually have some legs. But in terms of sort of actually messing with voting, I mean, this comes back to one of the issues that um, people like Trump himself were raising before, like, oh, there's going to be massive cheating, and you know, there's this sort of you know, the, there's going to be irregularities, right? Right. And I think first of all, there, it's worth saying there's been zero evidence, right, of any right. kind of major. Or even minor, really, um, irregularities, right? And one of the reasons it's Particularly almost an impossible. Where everybody is looking for it. Yeah, especially when the election where everyone's looking for it. But one of the reasons it's almost impossible for some, anyone to do this, in particular for Russia, right, is what Chris points us to, which is um, that, you know, we have a federal system here, right? And so that means that we have all sorts of ways of doing this. Every state runs their own, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they all do it a little bit differently than mm-hmm. everybody else, right? Um, and so there's not the sort of like, you know, national election, right, in one sense, um, in which, you know, one entity is running it all and there's one way we do it, right? right. Um, which makes it really, really hard um, to pull off cheating, right? Because you basically have to cheat in lots of different ways. Right, uh, in lots of different places. In lots of different yeah. places. And because of our very decentralized system in this regard, uh, I think that makes cheating much more difficult, right? It's sort to, of comforting. Off. It is very comforting. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, you know, there, there's a lot of advantage to not centralizing the power too much, right? Um, in in anything really, um, because it lessens the chances of abusing abusing of it. And I think this is one of those examples where, yep. you know, it, our system might look messy, but it also protects us in a lot of ways. And I think this is um, one instance of that. So I don't, I I think there's zero chance the Russians actually interfered with voting itself right. whether they influence voters that that i'm open to seeing you know evidence of i think the real likely impact of this story is that because president obama has ordered that a full report be made available to him prior to him leaving the presidency yep. if this report becomes public and you better bet some of it's going to be leaked um that mm-hmm. could have an impact on rex tillerson's confirmation mm-hmm. um, Absolutely. If if it really looks yeah. like Russia played a, a devious hand in American politics, right. um, that might push folks like Rubio and, and McCain and, and Graham to not just yeah. grandstand, but to make a principled vote against a confirmation. Mm-hmm. Or it might even, and, and, mm-hmm. if, and by the way, we should mention here, most presidents, I say most because we don't know what Trump's going to do, um, would prefer to pull a, uh, a nominee rather right. than have them get voted down in the Senate. Right. So we'd right. see Trump. We'd see Tillerson say something like, "Well, actually, I'm just kidding. I'd like to. I don't want this to be a controversy for the Trump administration. I want to see this become a smooth process. And I want to spend more time with my family. I want to yeah, sp- yeah. spend so more time with my family. family. Is the classic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think so some political scientists yeah. should actually study whether all the people who say they're spending more time with their family actually do spend more time with their families. <laughs> that um, would be kind of a neat study. Like, so what, what was your like quantitative time with family before, before and this after, nomination, yeah. and then after? Furthermore, we never see a, <laughs> someone saying, "I'm taking this nomination because I'd like to spend less time with my family." Right. Uh, those right. people annoy right. the crap out of me. Um, right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> no. Although that is basically what, um, so what's his name? John Spencer's character in The West Wing, Leo McGarry does. Uh-huh. Right? I mean, like, sort of breaks up his family because he's, he's serving the government. So, yep. Yeah, so he spends less time with his family. So that's, um, <laughs> so that's our example. Yeah, no, you're right, Chris. I mean, like, the last time a presidential 
um, nominee, a cabinet level nominee was voted down was John Tower in 89. Um, John Tower was uh, the first Bush's nominee for secretary of defense. Um, and they, they went ahead with the vote because he was a former senator and they felt like, you know, he at least deserved that vote, but, um, but he was voted down. I mean, yep. ever since then, there have been nominees who were viewed as unacceptable and presidents pulled them. I mean, the most Correct. recent example I can think of is Tom Daschle, um, in 2009. Yes, um, that's good. But, I forgot about that. But, the, you know, in general, um, you know, you just don't leave them up there. You say, yep. look, you know, you come up with some excuse to remove their nomination and then nominate somebody else, right? right. I mean, Harriet Myers is a prominent That's example for Bush, of, right? Yes, yeah. For the his Supreme Court nominee, and a lot yeah. of Republicans are like, eh, doesn't really have the chops to be on the Supreme Court, Correct. and so Bush pulled the nomination yep. in the end. Yeah. I think we could see that. I think we might see that with someone in the in the Trump administration for for these kinds mm-hmm. of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, gentlemen, I, there's another topic I want. There's two, two more things I'd like to talk about before we uh, break up um, for the holiday break. But the first of yep. those is. Um, Mitch, you proposed we talk about this, and I think this is a great idea to talk about, um, especially in light of our long conversation at the beginning of this podcast about what is political science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do we uh, effectively study the Trump administration as it unfolds? Um, mm-hmm. We have certain kinds of, of institutional models, mm-hmm. party-based models, um, ideological-based models, which we often use for presidents. But I'm going to make the case that we should look, because it, because it's so overwhelmingly important in this particular case, at the personality of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, I, my minor field in graduate school was political psychology. I'm mm-hmm. still really fascinated and convinced that um, how decision makers make decisions is of preeminent importance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what do you guys want to pay attention to and how do you want to pay attention to it um, in the decision making and the personality of Donald Trump? So one of the things uh, to think about, of course, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to study the presidency. So I don't want to suggest that this is the, this is the only one. Chris has alluded to some of those. Yeah. Um, you know, we can think about, you know, there's all sorts of different ways to, uh, to slice this. But as, as he said, one of the ways to think about this is to think about how do we how do we look at the person of the president? Or how do we think about their yes. um, their personality? So there have been some ways of thinking about this. Um, one particularly prominent political scientist um, named Barber came up with this idea that you basically, you basically, he, you, you think about whether um, presidents are uh, basically passive or active in yes. terms of their approach to the office, mm-hmm. and then you also think being about how much energy do they invest right. in being president? How much of a, it's how much are they <clears throat> um, a delegator versus a um, sort of. A, hands-on kind of president right exactly so you might think of someone like lyndon johnson as the classic active yes where he's involved in everything he's constantly doing stuff he's out right. there i mean he's passing just mountains of legislation a lot of which he's had a hand in mm-hmm. shaping and things yes. like that versus somebody um for example more like um well i mean we could think about we could think about somebody like reagan who had a lot of uh, uh who, who basically delegated most of his major policy proposals yep. uh, to other people or you could mm-hmm. think or even Eisenhower, who even Eisenhower de- delegated maybe, quite a bit, maybe, is maybe the classic passive. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but then, but then the other. By side, the way, we should be clear here. Barber doesn't argue that passive versus active is a is a value judgment. There might be you right. might be a perfectly good president by being passive. Yeah, right. although if, if, you're, if, you're, active, if you're a good right. delegate, although, although we will come back to the value part here because this gets back to our earlier conversation. <laughs> sure, well, but, sure, sure, sure. Um, but at any rate, because mm-hmm. Barber does make a value judgment in the end. <laughs> yes, good point. Um, but at any rate, mm-hmm. um, uh, so so you have this passive active dichotomy on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you also have positive and negative. And yes. basically that has to do with how the president views their job. 
Attitudinally. Is, attitudinally, right. Do they view this as something they really want to do, or is this something that they feel like is a burden or yes, a duty? That they alone can bear. Right. And so, for example, uh, <laughs> George Washington is actually sort of a classic negative. Someone who didn't necessarily want the job, somebody who took mm-hmm, it because they felt mm-hmm. like they had a duty to their country and got out of the way as soon as they felt like it was feasible mm-hmm. um, to do so. Um, Richard Nixon was another negative. Someone, yes. Someone who almost was compulsively president rather than joyfully president. Right, exactly. Um, and then and then on the other hand, you have people who are who are positive, people who feel like they were just born for the presidency, who love it. People Brooklyn! Who, <laughs> FDR. Yeah, yeah FDR. F- F- FDR, FDR Teddy. Reagan, Teddy. These guys are classic positives. I mean, they loved being president. They loved doing it. They loved mm-hmm. everything about it. Um, and so when you look at this, I mean, this gets back to sort of the sort of the value. You know, Barber makes all sorts of um, claims about what these different types will be. It sets up like mm-hmm. a four-four mm-hmm. box here. We have active pass, or we have active positive, active passive, and then you have negative positive, negative passive. Mm-hmm. Negative passive is the worst, right? Yeah, that's that's in general the way. This is where it gets sort of the value yep. <laughs> part here, where he sort of puts that part in there. Um, he basically says, you know, you, the best thing is an active positive, right? That's what, that's kind of where he... So he's throwing lands. FDR in there and Bill Clinton right. and John Kennedy and, boy, that sounds like a lot of Democrats. It um, does, yes. And I think that's been one of the big criticisms is that often undervalues somebody who's like Reagan who would be, uh, a, po- who would be a, a... A positive passive. A positive passive, right? Yep. Somebody who doesn't see as large of a role for government, mm-hmm. but nonetheless mm-hmm. enjoys being president and that maybe that's what, uh, mm-hmm. you know, ideologically thinks that's what uh, a president should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some criticisms to be made mm-hmm. there. But um, nonetheless, when we think about this, and I, there are other ways of cutting this. And I think Greenstein, who is more of a historian, actually, yeah, has, right, has, done, has done actually a better job giving us sort of uh, categories to think about. I think mm-hmm. so, too. Um, the knock on Barber, although we had fun, we, it's a very really fun right. conversation to have, is that there's nothing particularly scientific about right, this right. it's almost right. unfalsifiable and it might be overly simplistic too uh, um, i think over simplistic definitely well, and one of the problems you do run into just we should note studying the presidency is it's a small end problem right i mean it's, it is yes. hard to be yeah. sort of quantitative we're about to have an end of 45 man right <laughs> right well not and not even that because we go over cleveland oh, twice yeah, right dang so it. we only right. give him one <laughs> we only count him once of those kind of studies even though he had you know counts twice in our list of i just heard a great uh, right? usage so, so um People in sports are now starting to refer to non-consecutive dynasties. It's like the Patriots have been great for a long time. They've won four Super Bowls, yep. but not four Super Bowls in a row. Right. They're the Gro- it's, That's called a Grover Cleveland now. When you have a dynasty <laughs> nice. of non-consecutive nice. championships. Nice. I'm, I'm, I'm just happy that Grover Cleveland's name is being brought that's back right. in the public discourse. Yeah, uh, that makes things better. That will make America great again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But although, although maybe before we go on, we should maybe we should actually say, let's use Barbara here for a second and think about, like, where is Obama? Like, what was Obama? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the active, or active, passive? active. Well, that's a good question. Actually, yeah. this, this, I'm almost going to go passive. I think yeah, he certainly. I, I know that work less well than you two do, though. So he's certainly not. I mean, this is this is the armchair part because we're sort of just looking at him <laughs> in 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 totality, and that's that's yeah. a really hard way to measure this. Right. He's certainly someone who seems to see the presidency as a duty, although I think he draws some joy from it too. But certainly not the kind of joy that Bill Clinton drew from it. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. He's certainly more of a marginal case, but yeah, I, I guess if I was, if you pin me down, I'd make him, I'd label him as maybe a, um, as an active negative. But mm. man, I don't feel comfortable saying that. Yeah, yeah, he's he is, he does feel borderline both on the passive and on the the sort of um, negative positive line right. because, yeah, he he clearly doesn't view it as a sort of onerous duty in the way that some presidents have, but but he also yeah, I don't think he takes that joy in it, and he's. 
he's sort of active in the sense that he's proposed some big policy things, but he's also been, I mean, like compared to Reagan, for example, right? I mean, like who is who classifies as a passive, right? Um, in some senses, that's true. In other senses, Reagan was much more proactive about working with Congress, for example, and actually trying to contact congressmen. One of the criticisms that has been levied frequently against Barack Obama by his own party, he's aloof from his own party. Um, is he's aloof, right? He doesn't actually work Congress all that hard. Like when he um, when he wants to get something passed, I mean, the main way he's done this is actually usually sending Joe Biden up there to do mm-hmm. stuff, right? And Joe Biden Which is the one who got that tax deal but, through right after the reelection, right? Because he was able to work this out with Mitch McConnell, but um, you know, Obama really hasn't worked Congress very hard in the sense of calling them and really, you know, doing the sort of you know using that presidential power of persuasion, right, to yeah. to you know kind of overwhelm them. Right, Reagan was actually a lot more active in that sense. Good point. Um, so so Obama feels very hard to classify in this regard. Yeah. I, I, what do you think, Mitch? I, I would generally agree with that. I think um, it's very difficult to to see him. I, and, and this gets sort of into. Again, the the oversimplicity, I think, of Barber. Um, but one of the things I think to maybe nuance it a little bit, and sometimes uh, when I've taught the presidency, I do mm-hmm. this a little bit, is sometimes it's even helpful to sort of split, if you're going to use this method of analysis here, is to sort of split the presidency up into first and second terms. Yep. Um, because right. I think if we think about right. President Obama's first term, we might yep. think of him in more active terms. Yep. And, and yep. In even more positive terms. We might think of him as active positive. Mm-hmm. Because during that time, he was very, he seemed to actually, you know, on the campaign trail, and even in his first couple of years, he seemed to be very joyful about being the president. He was. Very he also had a Democratic this. Congress. He had a Democratic, exactly. He had a Democratic Congress, and so well, he for seemed the first to two actually, years anyway. Right, he, and, and 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 so he seemed to actually really enjoy this right. process of being yeah. out there and working on this stuff and trying to think about big yep. policy pick yep. goals. Um, and he was trying to think about big policy goals, both in foreign policy and domestic policy. Mm-hmm. And then I think once he sort of lost Congress and his things sort of started to spiral, um, both internationally and domestically, he just really lost the joy. And I think yeah, that's right. what we sort of have seen over the last, you know, five, maybe yeah. even six years, yeah. um, is, yeah. is him becoming much more negative about and seeing, you know, being president is much more of a duty um, than a joy. And he's become much more passive. He yeah. has basically, in many ways, you know, as, as Andy mm-hmm. said, he's sort of given up. I mean, mm-hmm. there hasn't been a lot mm-hmm. of um, at least serious push for, for domestic policy reforms. And, um, you know, as we were just talking about, you know, with the situation in Syria, I mean, his, his position, you know, even famously sort of leading from behind. I mean, he yeah. hasn't taken a super active role in, right. um, in American foreign affairs. You know, one one thing I, I often think with the presidency, and this is, I think, true across partisan lines, is that presidents would be much wiser to not seek re-election, right? I mean, almost <laughs> every second term we have is less successful in the first term, and it's much less happy. Um, they tend to face a lot more opposition. They're lame right. ducks for four years, right? So I've often thought, like, you know, the optimal way to be president really would be go all in that first term. Don't say you're not running for re-election, right? Wait till the last possible moment and then announce... I'm just going to focus on my job as president. It does a couple things. I mean, Which you, would you know your party too. if they don't have a suitable replacement for you. That, <laughs> yeah, I would. But but they, I mean, they will, right? They have for one thing, they usually have the vice president sitting there. I mean, even you know, you know maybe a Dick Cheney's not really a legit option. But Joe Biden in 2012 would have been right, and they certainly sure. had Hillary Clinton in the wings, right? So if Obama had done this, that would have been a, a viable possibility, right? So you know, I think you generally would be much happier. Presidents <laughs> generally can't resist running for re-election. I mean, the last person to not seek a second term, I think, was. Um, Rutherford Hayes, um, well, Johnson, sort of. Yeah, if you count Johnson or Coolidge, right? Because they, they, but they, but they had served more than right. one term, right? right. So, um, so they were odd cases. But yeah, certainly Johnson and Coolidge, you could you could count. Um, but the last person to get you know in there by election without sort of succeeding by the death of a presidency and not run for a second term 
is uh, Rutherford Hayes, right? So nobody can resist this, but it's almost inevitably unwise, right? And the second term is usually problematic, and I, I cannot think of a, an exception to the rule of less successful um, than so maybe the, the Confederates had it right, so, yeah. at least on that count, yeah, right? You right. just elect one six-year yeah. term, and that's it. Yeah, or more recently, the Mexicans, right, um, yeah. who also limit their presidents to to one term, right? And so, um, say so, you know that's that's all you get. And so focus on your job, right, as opposed to focus on getting reelected, right? Um, so, you know, I think there's there's a, a case to be made there um, in terms of, you know, thinking about the presidency. But yeah. Yeah. it'll be interesting to see what kind of President Donald Trump is I mean, in this regard. I mean, yeah, I, that's, I guess that's well, the next question. Is, I think I'm definitely going passive. Yeah. I think he's going to be a passive president, actually, but. In terms of in terms of sort of allowing policy. other people to govern, and as he supervises those policies. people, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, because he's not going to he's not going to work out the nitty gritty of policies, right? I can't I can't imagine him pouring over the ag bill. No, no. Um, or, well, for, I'm going to go farther. I can't imagine him pouring over any bill. <laughs> I don't think he's going to pour over any bills at all, right? I mean, I think he's going to give some very broad strokes instructions. This is what I want to happen. There needs to be a wall of some sort so that I can talk, go around talking about the wall, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, I think he's going to leave the details to others. So I think he's going to be ex- incredibly passive in that regard. And I also think for Obama, I don't think he's going to work Congress really hard. I mean, it's hard for me to see Donald Trump spending a lot of time yeah. talking well, to a bunch of individual congressmen. There. What's that? I mean, yeah, well, they don't like him. Been... He doesn't have connections. Uh, it's not likely that he would make things better if he talks to them. Um, so I think, again, he's going to delegate that. I mean, like Mike Pence is likely to sort of take over a Joe Biden kind of role. In this Mike Pence really could be the most powerful vice president in history. He could. He could. Yeah, I, I waffle between like he could be the most irrelevant vice president <laughs> since Premondale, which is sort of where the vice presidency became more important. And he could be the most powerful vice president in history. And yep. it just depends on how he he and Trump handled this. This is going to yep. be fascinating yeah. to watch. Um, and, I, oh, and, go ahead. and the other question is: What is is, is it going to be positive? And I do think this is an interesting thing about: it. Is it does, does does Donald Trump see this presidency as a positive or as a negative? Does That's he like harder. the fact that he's president That's or harder. not? I'm going to say yes uh-huh. because I think, I think, I think he does like too. the presidency. There are critics of the Trump administration who like to point out this narrative that Donald Trump sort of wandered into the presidency, <laughs> that he got into the Republic, the Republican primary as a lark. Mm-hmm. He thought he could improve his brand, and then he just sort of, as he kept being more and more successful, he kept pushing the envelope further and further, and the envelope led him all the way. That was a ticket to the White House. I don't buy that. <laughs> you, Donald Trump is not particularly ideological, but he is interested in power, and I think he's interested. Uh, mm-hmm. I think he's mm-hmm. interested in be uh, in agenda setting. I'm going to put, put that carefully. I don't think I don't know how interested he is mm-hmm. in governance, mm-hmm. but he's interested in, in, in framing the debate mm-hmm. um, and controlling the yep. debate. And I think from that perspective, he really wants to be president. Yeah, he may have come to that desire late in life, but I think but I think he does have that desire. And I think I want to. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I want to put a little sort of framing on that. I think he wants to be president on his terms, right? Yeah. And so I think his terms are going to be. He wants to go around and talk a lot. He wants to make a show out of it. I mean, I think mm-hmm. to his earlier point about the Supreme Court, I think that's right. I think you're going to get some kind of um, dog and pony show, right, um, that, you know, surrounding that that nomination, right, and probably other things. So I think he wants to do this on his terms, and I think on those terms he likes it. I think if he gets forced into being a sort of nuts and bolts policy guy, right, right. in the Obama or Clinton mold, um, that he would find the presidency incredibly annoying and frustrating. Um, but I don't think he's going to get forced into that. I think he, you know, he has options. I and mean, again, he can de- de- delegate this to Pence. He can delegate this to Ryan. In the Priebus. absence of presidential so. prerogative on key matters of policy, 
other people will step in and fill those gaps. Oh, yeah. Paul Ryan will be happy to submit a reform to Obamacare uh, to the Trump administration and let Donald Trump sign his name on it if he wants. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things, maybe we should think about this once we are actually into the Trump presidency, we have a little more data on this. But one of the things I'm watching for in this the next few years here is. Does this lead to a shift in the balance of power in our government? So one of the mm. definite trends over time in American government has been a shift of power from the legislative branch, which is clearly what the founders intended. I mean, they, they list it first in the Constitution for right. a reason. They spend more time talking about it for a reason, right? Yep. This is where they thought the power would and should reside. Right. Um, and over time, and, that and, is very much – did, I should say. For, and did for, 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 for maybe even 100, 150 right. years, arguably. Yeah, arguably at least up to – Teddy and really maybe up yeah. to FDR, right? I mean, yeah. it's really we get a big shift, I think, at FDR. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, it, which begins earlier, right? right. Um, watch Ken Burns' fascinating documentary on the Roosevelt. So, if you want to consider that era more, it's great. But, <laughs> um, but you know, I think there, there's been a big shift in the last you know century or so, maybe a little less, um, toward executive power. And I wonder if the Trump presidency will temporarily or maybe not temporarily, right, move it back at least a little bit in the direction of the legislative. And I think there are, there are advantages to the executive in this era of sort of television and social media where, you know, you, you can have sort of the one view versus 535. But this could this could lead to at least some um, balancing of that power. Again. So I don't we'll think it will be permanent. Um, I think I don't all either, the structural but... forces you just described will continue to push power towards the president and away from the legislature. But in the short term, if Trump willingly abrogates power Mm -hmm. in terms of decision making to legislatures and others then um, you might see a or more importantly if he remains deeply unpopular um, and Mm -hmm. has other um, and and congress and his own party decides to distance themselves from him yeah i think you could see a temporary revival Mm -hmm. of of uh legislative power Mm -hmm. certainly paul ryan would be interested in doing that i think Mm -hmm. um absolutely but uh i don't I, i i think that's that's only temporary I think that's right. Although I will say that if you if you give more power to an institution or to people within that institution, mm-hmm. uh, it is not as easy to get it back. And there was their their expectations for what their role should be change, and so the next president will have to fight those battles a little more um, than perhaps past presidents have. So it might, I think it will swing back, right for sure, okay. um, toward the executive. Whether it swings back quite as far, or quite as fast, is an yeah. an interesting question. Good point. Right. Good point. Well, but one of the things, and I'm not sure how long um, we want to think about this. Well, I have a couple too. of other things that we need. We need to, if we're going to talk about the psychology of yeah, the president, probably we cannot end with Barber. Like this is, <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. And so, and so one of the things I just want to mention, and I don't know that we want to spend a ton of time on this, but there are sort of other dimensions we can think about. Absolutely. Um, so one of the ways that we can think about this is we can think of um, the presidency in terms of things like, does the president cast a, a serious vision of policy? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we can think about vision. That's one dimension. We could also think about their organizational capacity. How how good are they at organizing things? And how do they organize things? How do they exactly? Are they are they more top down? Are they more like what some people describe as sort of spokes of the wheel? Is there yep. some hybrid? What's yep. what's that look like? Another way that we can uh, think about this is um, what some people describe what what Greenstein describes as emotional intelligence. How mm-hmm. good are they at sort of regulating their own their own um, emotional and mm-hmm. psychological state and using and or or do they allow emotions to cloud their judgment and, right. and actions? No comment. Um, would you would you rather have uh, Spock or one of the Furies as your president? <laughs> right. All emotion well, or no emotion. Right. Well, one of the things that's interesting is you know uh, up until this point, um, one of the presidents that Greenstein is most critical of in terms of emotional intelligence, of course, is Bill Clinton. <laughs> uh, somebody who could not regulate right. his passions, yeah. um, and the, and that that <laughs> hampered and undermined his yeah. ability to, to govern. an almost Shakespearean level. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, 
And, uh, and and of course, other uh, elements that you can look at is you can look at uh, how do they how do they approach the in, uh, how do they intellectually approach the office? Mm-hmm. Right. So are they somebody yeah. who, for example, like Lyndon Johnson, who pours over every detail, right. um, or Carter as well, who also poured over every detail, mm-hmm. but to his detriment? Mm-hmm. Um, or are they somebody like um, uh, George W. Bush, for example, who um, wasn't as concerned with every single policy? A big picture detail. guy. Right. And and, mm-hmm. and, and and in some ways was, was successful at that, right? So you sort of have a contrast here. And this is where it gets a little sticky on judging because, mm-hmm. you know, just as sort of you have the contrast of Johnson versus Carter on the details, mm-hmm. both of them were very detail-oriented, one mm-hmm. successfully, one unsuccessfully. Right. Um, you mm-hmm. also have people who are sort of big-picture people, you know, and you can actually think of, just to stick with the parties again, you think of Reagan right. versus uh, George W. Bush, right? And right. Um, both of them at varying levels of, of success on being right. sort of big-picture, pulled back from the details mm-hmm. um, on a lot of mm-hmm. Policies. Um, so, so those are some other dimensions yep. that you can think about when when evaluating the presidency, and I think mm-hmm. each of those mm-hmm. yield interesting insights in some ways. Yep. Uh, well, another another dimension I should mention too is uh, political skill, um, mm-hmm. which is something that where, uh, as Andy has suggested, mm-hmm. maybe Obama has been lacking, where he's not mm-hmm. particularly good at working other people to get them to do what he wants. And right. by the way, when right. we say political skill, that's exactly what you mean. We don't necessarily mean right. a knowledge of how a bill becomes a law schoolhouse rock style. Right. We right. mean uh, a, an innate sense of what leverages people right. in a way to get what you want. And in right. that way, Donald Trump might exceed uh, Barack Obama on political skill. Mm-hmm. Yes. If he has an innate sense of what is driving people. Right. Absolutely. Right. Um, right. Whereas, whereas if we think about emotional intelligence, uh, it's hard to think of a president who has had more emotional intelligence than President Obama. Mm-hmm. Um, he has mm-hmm. been Very one, of, one of the most disciplined. Yeah. And um, in that way, you know, if we're going to sort of put a moral spin on it, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, President Obama has had, you know, pretty much in his own life, at least like almost no, you know, basically no scandals. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've basically yeah. been looking at a president who is by all accounts, it truly is a family man. <laughs> right. Um, which is interesting, by the way, based on his youth, right? Sort of his right. own account of his youth, which sounded a lot, um, you know, more wandering, right? Sure. Sort of mildly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, you know, he, he learned something from that, apparently. And, yep. and when he got into the political realm, I mean, I absolutely agree. He's been very disciplined and very scandal-free. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah. whereas we think about the incoming administration, right. <laughs> whereas it might have <laughs> Which may more not be the political skill, then, yes. but yes, uh, but maybe uh, much <laughs> right. more lacking in the <clears throat> in the emotional intelligence department. Right, right. I mean, sort of message mm-hmm. discipline is not going to be Donald Trump's thing. I think that's... Probably not. That is safe to say. I'll, I'll just throw in one other person to think about, sort of how we think about presidents. And mm-hmm. Maybe we want to return to this when we have a better sense of it next year. But um, Stephen Skowernick also writes about politics presidents make. And one yep. of his big points is what matters even more maybe than the individual president, whether you know, sort of passive, active, negative, positive, all that sort of thing is sort of where he falls in the sequence, right? Yes. In other words, um, is there the, is a historicism to yeah, this. Yeah, there is, right? I mean, so is, this is to him much more about sort of which policies are dominant, right? So one thing we need to think about this in recent terms is that for a long time after Reagan, right, people are responding to Reagan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question is, are you with the, the sort of dominant policy? And is that policy still ascendant or is it um, on the decline, right? And we can argue that Reagan's are somewhat, in some ways on the decline now, right? And, and it's hard, it's always hard to see, I think, when you're in it, right? Where where are we in this process, right? Has Obama Although started a new dominant one? deterministic in his, yeah. in, in the politics presidents yeah. make. I mean, he thought the, the Roosevelt era lasted until Reagan. Right. And uh, right. Carter was the last gasp of Roosevelt yep. New Dealism. Right. Reagan sets a and course. fails because and by the way, he can't and, and do it argues anymore. that this happens about every forty years. Right. So if Reagan comes right. to power in 1980, then we should see 2020 as the next big uh, president, uh, next big agenda-setting moment for the presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe maybe Donald Trump is the last gasp of Reaganism. Yeah. 
right? Maybe maybe he is the last gasp of Reaganism. Um, you could also argue Bush was, right? I mean, like, yeah, that's, if, that's if a Obama said a new problem. one, this is so, so this is, it, it gets very nebulous, so right? So that's why I'm saying, like, I don't think we need to get into the weeds of this because yeah. um, I think the big the big picture point you want to think about is to what extent does it matter that the president is having to respond to previous presidents and sort of how how popular or unpopular right. their policies are. So one obvious example is how Trump handles the Obamacare thing, right? right. Yeah. Yeah, which is unpopular in some ways, right? But in other ways, has a lot of popular name, components. popular in practice. Right. right. has a lot exactly. of popular components, and I think that if it's repealed without a good replacement, um, there are going to be a lot of unhappy people who are going to say, oh, I can't get insurance now. I can't remain on my parents' insurance now. I can't afford insurance now. I mean, like, there's, right. you know, so this becomes or even a lot worse, more complicated. Really sick than person that I know no longer has insurance. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yep. Which is, you know, again, to our earlier conversation, perhaps going to happen, right? So, um, so I think there's, you know, just thinking about sort of where they fall in the sequence is one other thing to yeah. kind of keep in mind. Um, I'm, yeah, I have reservations about Skarnik's argument too. I think these, again, it, none of these feel super scientific to me to our <laughs> our beginning conversation, right. right? But, um, but nonetheless, something to keep in mind. I'd be remiss if I didn't throw a few things out here. Is the, um. I'll, I'll carry the flag for political psychology here. Folks like Skronik and Barber, um, who produce sort of structural or sort of, uh, sort of you know, two-by-two two table kinds of theories, um, are generally out of vogue in, in political psychology in terms of evaluating the personalities of presidents. Uh, we tend to draw more closely from behavioral psychologists and, and, and increasingly mm -hmm. neuroscientists uh, to try to understand a couple of things that I think are really driving uh, presidential behavior. The first one I'd like to point to is I'd like to harken back to a podcast we did a couple of months ago with, with a neuroscientist, Adam Johnson, um, who t we talked about moral reasoning. Mm -hmm. And I think it's quite clear that different individuals throughout our, po um, our polity exercise different priorities in terms of their moral reasoning, and that's absolutely true of presidents. And I think we should we can make some ex we can set some expectations about how Donald Trump will communicate to others and how he will reason himself in terms of moral reasoning. Like how what kinds of things will he prioritize? Will he prioritize mm -hmm. purity, uh, which presents a certain kind of moral argument for things like illegal immigration um, mm -hmm. and and uh, the role of Muslims in the United States, um, or will he prioritize equality and fairness mm -hmm. or will he prioritize something else and those kinds mm -hmm. of those kinds of things i think will are are useful and predictive and potentially falsifiable about about presidential decision making i'd also point to some other kind of basic personality kinds of assessment things mm -hmm. uh, one uh, avenue that political science political psychologists look down is sort of motivational reasoning mm -hmm. um, what is actually yeah. driving the president and this is right. a, a little bit more nuanced look than some what barbers doing are you motivated by a need to affiliate with others do you like do you like people to like you or mm -hmm. do you like to be in control of things? Right. Um, or do you like to be dominant in some kind of way? The, these are very different motivations, and different mm -hmm. people yeah. exhibit them to different degrees. And other, there's other kinds of uh, things I think we should look at, too. Uh, in term, rather than looking at passive versus active, what I think a more um, accurate summation of a person's uh, thinking is uh, cognitive complexity. Um, to what extent do you see the world in very stark shades of black and white? Things are good and evil and very little in between. And to what extent do you see the world is colored in shades of gray with lots of different possible nuances? And I think very clearly we hear we're leaving the Obama administration where Obama has, a, has exhibited high degrees of cognitive complexity. Now, that term sounds like I'm paying him a compliment. That's not necessarily the case. A cognitive complexity can mean that um, you can overthink things and overanalyze mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and, and sort of dither, um, whereas someone who is a clear black and white thinker can make, can make sharper decisions. Mm -hmm. By all means, uh, um, 
Winston Churchill was more of a black and white thinker about the Nazis than mm-hmm. um, than than his predecessor. So I think there's a there's some there, there's times mm-hmm. for which you want to be that kind of thinker. And by and um, Phil Tetlock, a psychologist, has written a, a fairly famous book on foxes and hedgehogs, or specifically on, on, on judgment decision making styles, where the foxes know lots of different kinds of things. They're the cognitively complex ones. And on average, they can be, you know, they're kind of middling in their decision-making capacities. Uh, Hedgehogs know one thing, and they know it really well. So that leads them to be right. When they're right, they're really right. And when they're wrong, they're really, really wrong. Winston Churchill Mm -hmm. was a hedgehog. He knew the Nazis were wrong. He knew the Nazis were bad news. And he he basically built his entire reputation on getting that right. Mm -hmm. FDR was maybe more of a fox. He, got, he, um, he threw a lot of things at the wall. He tried a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, Foxes tend to be more pragmatic and less ideological. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know which one Trump is yet. Um, whether It seems that the two Paragon cases, uh, Obama seems to be high cognitive complexity. George W. Bush seems to be low cognitive complexity. Um, if they're not for us, they're against us, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's harder to tell where Trump is at, but that's something we should pay attention to. Yep. The other things we should pay attention to, too. Um, cl- uh, the MBT, sort of classic personality traits. And uh, um, how um, uh, how narcissistic, how neurotic uh, um, a right. person is, how yeah. much they care about self, how much they focus yeah. on others, how altruistic yeah. they are. All of these kinds of things right. are, are we're drawing from psychology, and we're and I think will tell us a lot of a right. lot about presidential decisions, right. presidential organization, and, mm-hmm. and those sorts of things too. So yeah. those are the kinds of things we'll we will continue to talk about on EST as we move forward into the Trump presidency, as we observe mm-hmm. more behavior. Mm-hmm. And as we see more things, we're, kind of, we're still going to try and be political scientists right. about this and analyze right. uh, what Trump has done rather than just um, what we what we desire, I right, suppose. for sure. And I think the, the hedgehog fox thing maps pretty nicely onto sort of that big picture versus more of a policy person. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so absolutely. There's, a, there's a high connection between those two. Absolutely. Yeah. One last thing, and I don't know that we have a um, – I don't know that we can answer this, so I just want to pose this and then get your thoughts on it. Um, <laughs> Americans have left this election process as we're leaving EST as a weekly podcast, um, b- broken but unbowed. <laughs> uh, uh, we're still uh, Americans. We're still Americans. We're still America. Um, but man, this has been a brutal season, and it seems like everyone is worse than the time before. At least that's what we tell ourselves. We know <laughs> that America has had rancorous politics before, but it seems particularly bad right now. What, if anything, can America do to reconcile? What is is there an end to this uh, increasingly divisive politics that isn't just more divisiveness? I have I have no big answer to this, but I'm going to give a small answer. Okay, um, which is for our, our, I think for our um, listeners to think about at an individual level, right? I think two things I would highlight. One is um, that you know I think there's been an increasing tendency to view the other as an enemy mm. um, as sort of again sort of viewing the world very simply right good bad and so whatever side you're not on those people the other side is bad uh, no, that, that other side's bad the people you're with are good right um, and I think we need to be careful about that right I mean I think we're we live in a morally complex world in which none of us um, you know are purely good or bad right I mean we are all from um, I'll take my you know explain the Christian perspective here very briefly right um, we are all created in God's image and therefore are good because we're God's creation and we are all fallen into sin and therefore are bad because we're sinners right yep. and and whether you're Republican or Democrat right that's true of you right um, and that's or, true of the people on the other side from you and so I think remembering that perspective and then interacting with people who are different than yes. you right I mean so if you are conservative. 
um, you know, interact with your liberal friends and remember yeah. that not only are your liberal friends decent people, um, because you know you presumably think they're decent people if you're friends with them, right? Um, but the same is true of liberals you don't know, right? And the same is true if you're a liberal, right? And you have conservative friends, right? Interact with those people and those your family, yes. I mean, some of us are about to go home and interact with family who might take different political lines than us, right? Um, they are good people, right? And and guess what? You can probably project that onto the conservatives or the liberals that you don't know, right? So I think that's the one sort of um, small one sm- sort of small piece of advice I'd offer there. The second one I'd say too is in terms of this post factual thing, right? I mean, um, I think we need to each be better than that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've moved in a very bad direction, um, and so be conscious of sort of like what's true, what's not oh. true, right? Um, I, I get the fact that there are some things that are debatable, right? Um, that's fine. But, Particularly but there are some things that are clearly false. Don't share those even if you think that they align with where you want to be politically, right? Very so, true. Very um, true. Those are my two sort of small piece of advices. Those are not um, or advice. They're not big picture solutions, I recognize. But if we all do them, then maybe they start contributing to that. So. Yeah, I think it's fair. And uh, Merry Christmas, guys. Oh, Mitch, uh, you want to add anything to that? Um, I guess if we're just thinking in terms of predicting, um, I actually have a fairly dark (laughs) picture about where we're going. I I, I don't. Mordor. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I I guess, I guess it just seems like this election has highlighted forces that are at work that are not going to lead to um, a lot of reconciliation and, and coming together. I think, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing increasing divides between, um, people based on regional differences, class differences, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of times as we're as we're and we're also seeing, I think one of the other things that we're seeing that's going to exacerbate this as well is, mm-hmm. you know, the American economy is changing a lot, mm-hmm. um, and you know people can talk about you know coal coming back or any of these other things. It's just not going to happen. I mean, there's just mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get into it, but I just want to think about fact based things. I mean, this <laughs> is just it's, it's, yes. it's not going to happen. And so what that means then is there's going to be a lot of um, changes in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And as we've seen from this election, uh, what happens when there's pain is people tend to blame others and they mm-hmm. scapegoat and that leads mm-hmm. to a lot of the rancorousness. And I think mm-hmm. we're going to continue to see that. I see no reason. There's, there seem to be no structural reasons to think that that's going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you know, this sort of gets to a deeper problem, you know, in some ways, um, you know, we can talk about ways that might alleviate that pain, um, but it's really not going to go away. There's mm-hmm. no, um, there, there's no, into that um, uh, really in sight right now. And in fact, I think the technology industries that we're promoting right now, sort of the cyber industries, um, thrive on this kind of change and constant mm-hmm. pain and, and undermining. And I think that's uh, only going to exacerbate these things as well. And, and I mean, just as we've talked about too, uh, sorry, just one other element that we've seen grow here is social media and the hiving off of everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody's let, now living in their own bubble. And as we see the mm-hmm. undermining and distrust of me of what, you know, quote unquote, mainstream media um, and the increase of people, mm-hmm. you know, being in algorithm driven worlds, I don't see any indication that, you know, as much as I agree morally with what Andy is encouraging here, I see no indication that people are actually going to increase in that way. And mm-hmm. there is, in fact, strong economic incentives not to. Mm-hmm. Facebook and Twitter and everybody else has strong reasons to prevent us from being exposed to things we don't like because then that undermines their ad revenue and, mm-hmm. um, you know, people using their websites. And so there is actually, you know, a strong economic, you know, just to be sort of false consciousness here for a moment, mm-hmm. but there's a strong economic incentive here for uh, exacerbating the conflicts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, okay, so Bramson and Crum have been the ghosts of Christmas past and Christmas future. Um, let me try to be the ghost of Christmas <laughs> present here. Um, 
and and suggest that I think there's a little bit more hope in the system. Um, I, I generally tend to agree with these guys that things are fairly grim in the in the in the political structures that are built to create divisiveness in our society. But uh, and this is going to be fluffy, so maybe maybe you can reject this out of hand. But um, the political pendulum in the United States tends to swing, and it tends to swing. Uh, away from and then towards some kinds of political unions. We're in a particularly divisive time right now. It is entirely possible that, we'll, that potential will continue to swing that way. And the, and the subject, next president, and the next president, and the next president will only capitalize on political divisiveness. You know, after Donald Trump, uh, Kanye West, and after Kanye West, then <laughs> uh, then Michael Moore, and then after Michael Moore, then uh, I, I, you know, Judge Judy, I, I presume. Um, but but okay. But in all seriousness, if um, at a certain point, then um, forces outside the United States. And here I'm thinking about the world wars, but forces inside the United States will ultimately impel us back towards moderation. It's part of what the pendulum does. And I, I, I don't know exactly when the when the downswing happens, but I'm looking forward to that apogee. Um, on behalf of my colleagues, I just need to oh, say I just oh, need yes. to say that I've been gone. <laughs> I took like a oh probably hour and ten minute break from this podcast to go to a meeting, uh-huh. and I'm back, and you guys are still recording. So it's, I'm impressed. Well, we had to we're get not going to be recording again until February, yeah. so we wanted to right. give like, the extended. Right. Cut. They, have a, nice. they have a month and a half to listen. Let it to breathe this. a little yeah. bit. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. To, to yeah. Listen to this in some sections. Take a couple intermissions. Yeah, enjoy this over some eggnog. Do you guys like eggnog? <laughs> no, yeah. I do. I do not. Hard uh, okay. pass. Ha- All right. Oh, a uh, hard take. So Moore and I are the eggnog wing, and Crum and Mulberry are the anti-eggnog. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to experiment, make some. some but they're still decent cream. people, even though they don't eat drink. Ooh, eggnog <laughs> ice cream is interesting. All my friends <laughs> on Facebook say eggnog is terrible. <laughs> yeah, so therefore, right. everybody, anybody who thinks I'm your friend on Facebook, you're gonna have to unfriend me because I love eggnog. <laughs> yeah, Facebook is even now noting, don't show Moore's. That's right. Eggnog, eggnog is a hug in the cup. <laughs> Whoa. Do they listen to our podcast? Ooh. Scary. <laughs> All right. With that frivolity, um, on behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, I'm Chris Moore saying thanks for listening to Election Shock Therapy. We'll rejoin you in February and go Royals. Go Royals.